This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same-game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. Need an extra hand with dinner? Just ask your connected home device to fill your pasta pot. And Delta Faucet Voice IQ technology will fill it with the perfect amount of water. Visit deltafaucet.com slash voice IQ to discover more. Everyone needs more vacation, right? The new United Gateway card knows how to take you away with great travel rewards and no annual fee. Ever. The wait for vacation is over. Tap now or visit unitedgatewaycard.com to apply. You know what I want? Hello and welcome to the Raptors Republic weekly podcast, and I'm your host Samson Folk, and today joining me is one of my very favorite guests, by some measure, my guy, my friend, my buddy, and Marcus Gasol advocate, but not only that, a writer for Raptors Republic as well, Adam McQueen. How are you doing today, man? I'm good, man. I'm good. Great holiday season, and I'm just excited to be talking Raps with you again, buddy. What a way to start the year. Yeah. Did you find, we were just talking about this before the podcast, did you find that watching the games while in the UK, in the morning, not even live, but was there a tranquility that was attached to that? You weren't caught up in the hubbub of fandom, maybe? What What was that like? Oh, for sure, man. I mean, sometimes watching the games live, you do get kind of distracted by the Twitter, the Twitter buzz, what people are talking about. And as you mentioned, the kind of the the slumps during the games start to kind of wear on you and you, you, you get distracted. So it was nice to just peacefully watch the game in isolation, maybe make a coffee in the morning, 8 a.m., and just kind of enjoy the game in its purest form, I suppose. But it was um it was it was a it was a slog of games though. I didn't realize they were gonna be playing this many games and including Christmas time and there was a lot of good and there was a lot of bad. So, yeah, I mean, let's let's get into it. Well, how did you find? First of all, I'll start with the front court. Then, with the the biggest Marcus Hall advocate I might have ever met outside of Spain. <laughs> how did you find the Raptors? Did where were they missing Gasol? And where did you find that they were able to replace what he brought in certain aspects during the slog of games that he wasn't there for? I mean. They've, they've still held on defensively just by the virtue of having so many good defenders, but it's not the same without him there, especially in pick-and-roll defense. I think we've we've kind of noticed this, uh, the the way that they're dropping Ibaka and Boucher in the pick-and-roll, it's had pretty negative results so far, and it's clear they're doing this because of the rebounding woes, etc., etc., but... With Gasol, his pick-and-roll defense is such that he can drop but still be a threat in the passing lane because of his arms. So it's not an easy, it's not an easy pass for the, uh, the ball handler in that situation to the rolling big. He can still, he has that length and size to really not allow the, 
the guard to blow past him, blow by him in that in that situation. So I think that's been the biggest area of weakness for the Raptors with with Gasol's omission. In contrast, it's given Boucher even more minutes. And I mean, at the start of the season, I was skeptical on what Boucher would bring this season if he is an NBA level player. And it seems to me over this holiday period that he's kind of proven me wrong. Well, yeah, he's been nothing short of spectacular for quite a few games. And like the last game they played, maybe the most encouraging part was that not spectacular, just showing a decent floor because he didn't have a huge stat stuffing game. It wasn't the 12 points, 11 rebounds in 15 minutes that sometimes we see from him where he's just running the floor, walking into a lot of stats. But in the last game, really dominating the paint for stretches, even with his slight figure, and really you know, mucking it up as far as the offensive end and making it complicated for the other team to rebound. But on his own defensive end, doing a pretty good job of cleaning the glass and staying at home while also being able to get out and contest shots near the rim, which is pretty much the thing that Marc Gasol does best, is Marc Gasol, like you said, being able to play the passing lane while also being in a position to A, get his box out, and B, contest and slide over to make that happen. So watching Boucher do that has been really interesting. I think we talked at the start of the year that we'd have to see really big improvements in the pick-and-roll defense and also offensively just with his touch. But more so than anything, this Raptors team this year has been surviving off of a lot of energy offensively from those players. And Boucher is nothing different. I mean, he has a couple games where he'll shoot the three-ball well but his pick-and-roll defense, what have you thought of that so far specifically? I'm still not sold. I'm still not sold. I was just doing a rewatch this morning of the two Boston games, Christmas Day and and the, and the Raptors' inc- incredible win on the, on the 28th. I'm not sure what day that was, but soon after. And Boucher still str- – I mean, Kemba Walker is an incredibly hard – person to defend especially for a big but if you rewatch even the game where the Raptors won so many of Kemba's buckets in the paint was just taking Boucher off the dribble in that pick and roll scenario and obviously that's also a point where um, Kemba's defender also needs to be closer to him on his hip and he was kind of getting free uh, at any moment and in both games he kind of dominated Boucher and just kind of manipulated him, similar to how Lowry does when he snakes around in a pick and roll. But Kemba just finished at will over him, and I think that's where his slight frame really is an issue. And he's improved, and on on offense, him as a rolling option in the pick and roll is something the Raptors really don't have with Ibaka and Gasol, and it's brought a new level of energy which you mentioned there and I, I've, I've really liked that I think he could still be more efficient at the rim as a, as a finisher but the pick and roll defense is is still a concern and depending on the matchup in the playoffs of the Raptors that will really determine if he's playable or not yeah I like that you brought up the he's been a great dive man obviously not perfect but and it is quite easy to be a prolific dive man next to Kyle Lowry if you're willing to run to the rim Boucher doing a pretty good job of that. And like you said, it does add another element to the Raptors' offense that they don't have with Marcus Gasol and with Serge Ibaka. Marcus Gasol has a proclivity for 
obviously the the pop out to the three point line, and that's the way they want it. So they can reset and do dribble handoffs off of that action if there isn't a shot created. Serge Ibaka likes to work in the short roll. He's really comfortable in that position, or just a little bit farther back in the mid range. So teams get accustomed to that. Then they have this whatever six foot eleven, hundred and six pound guy <laughs> screaming through the lane, going to catch huge lobs, you know, pocket passes before his you know, go-go gadget arms jut out and he throws one down. So it's it's cool to see that. As far as the pick-and-roll defense, and I'm appealing to you because I, I quite like your takes on basketball and I think you have a good eye for the game. So when you're seeing him losing it, let's say these specific matchups, when Kemba comes around the screen, Chris Boucher is right there and he's dropping or he's dropped. So if he's already dropped, Kemba's probably going to take the shot. But if he's dropping, is it the fact that he's getting beat to the rim or that because he's quite slight, some point guards are able to push him under the rim. Because I know that's something that Kyle Lowry is very good at. And Kyle Lowry does that to big men that aren't as big. He'll give them, you know, he'll give them the shoulder and get them under the basket before he finishes with two hands with the credit card vertical right at the end there. But as far as Boucher, is it that his foot speed isn't allowing him to keep up and he's getting beat to the glass? Or is it that he's getting pushed under the rim? Or is it a mix of both? I, I think it's more of the footwork. I think that Kemba, Kemba and Lowry aren't necessarily the similar players. I mean, right. Kemba's far more herky-jerky, and he doesn't have the, the, the strength that Lowry does to, to bump some off the base, off their, off their base in the way that Lowry does. Um, but I think with Boucher, is he's got these his feet, he keeps them planted for too long, and then he recovers covers with a quick one, two, three steps, and that's why he's such a good help defender, but he doesn't have the short, choppy steps to match someone like Kemba, who's a six-foot-one point guard that's incredibly elusive with a tight handle, and he's also, his slight frame, it actually works against him because Kemba was almost managing to, like, slither by him, where someone like a Gasol, who just by sheer size alone occupies so much more space that is is incredibly difficult to navigate around Gasol, especially when the Raptors dig aggressively from the wings too and just pack the paint. And so just the size alone with Gasol makes it far harder for someone like Kemba to slither around him. It was more, yeah, I wouldn't say that Kemba physically got him under the rim, but he just kind of manipulated him. He kept getting to the other side of the hoop. He was using the rim as his friend and kind of, keeping Boucher's shot-blocking ability at bay more than anything. Okay, so let's... Um, well, we've been... I guess it sounds like we're being a little bit harsh on Boucher, but for yeah, the podcast, I, we I, do... Let's be more positive, because yeah. i got to eat crow, because I didn't think he could play in the NBA, and I actually wanted to talk about this. Is With bench players in particular, I think sometimes we can fall victim to thinking about what they're not good at. And at the end of the day, if these bench players were good at everything, if they were just above average or quality players in every regard, they wouldn't be bench players. And so I think we got to look at, for Boucher, what he has been doing and what he right. continues to bring. And I think that's something for all bench players. We need to focus more on the positives than the negatives with them. Totally. So I want to ask you, you've seen the 30-point comeback, right? I have indeed. I have indeed. Okay. I tell you what, I was actually watching that one live. I was so jet lagged. I turned it off and then was like, I'll rewatch the end in the morning. And it was one hell of a wake up. <laughs> wow. 
So uh, you did watch the end and when you woke up. So you did see a fantastic defensive stretch from Boucher then and a Gasol-esque performance that I'd like to highlight. And so when you're watching that game, you would have seen that Dallas coming down on the pick and roll or just breaking and getting through in that defensive penetration. Boucher did a really good job of negotiating the space between the rim and the three-point line and contesting shots but also making sure that the Mavericks were passing out to players that they didn't want to. He was doing a really good job of incentivizing the pass to the corner where the Raptors were eager to trap, things like that. As far as his cerebral defense in that Dallas game, I think that's the best I've seen it so far because his defense usually can be encapsulated by these incredible feats of athleticism and length, like blocking a three-pointer running it down and, you know, getting the Raptors going in transition, something like that, or a huge skyscraping block. But in this Dallas game, the same for maybe a Malcolm Miller as well, just really, really good positional defense. Did you think that was a big step for him? And what specifically did you like that he did in that game? Oh, I mean, I think you just touched on it there. It was negotiating the space and kind of knowing when to commit to the ball handler, when to really when to really like sit back and use your shot blocking ability because he has such fast twitch he has such a fast twitch skill set that he can get up and alter a shot later than most rim protectors can because he's so so quick and nimble for his size um sorry i've forgotten the first part of your question now i kind of faded off there a little bit oh what what is it about his game let's i'll I'll rephrase this as far as his game is, like you said, he is fast twitch, of course, and that's the feature of his defense. But as far as the cerebral aspect of his game, like maybe his footwork, trying to read a defender, getting caught, you know, stepping one way as opposed to right. another, maybe that's something we don't like. But in this game against Dallas, always making the right steps, always making the right reads. Did you find that those reads are something he can build on and something he can emulate going forward? Or is it just, you know, heat of the moment? Dallas is rattled. What did you think of that? Um, actually, you know, that's a good point. I think as well with Jalen Brunson being the primary ball handler a lot of the time or DeLon Wright, they're not the same level of athlete or scoring. They don't present the same sort of scoring threat like a Kemba. So it's, it's a lot less pressure on Boucher in those scenarios where he struggled the most. And I think, yeah, we might have been quick to say that his lack of, uh, I guess, feel on the defensive end or his basketball intelligence because he really hadn't played many minutes and it's 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 such a learning experience and we've seen it with so many Raptors this year once you get provided 25 to 30 minutes and you can really you can fail regularly because there isn't anyone to take your spot at this point with the injuries that that's where you can really be provided an opportunity to learn rather than eight minutes four of its garbage time and the other four if you make two screw-ups you're off the floor so in that regard it it could be that these these minutes that he that boucher is being offered he is starting to progress in that in that aspect and it doesn't mean that he's going to be the best the best defender in this open space and he's still probably going to struggle if say Kyrie Irving, if he ever returns, or or maybe even a Jimmy Butler who loves to spam the pick and roll. It's not to say that he will he won't struggle in those aspects, but there has been incremental improvement, and maybe his lack of defensive intelligence that we first thought was was more just a lack of experience than intelligence. 
Yeah, and so I'll start off eating the crow, and then I'll swing it to you. So I'm going to highlight my favorite thing that I've seen about his game, and it's his ability to squirm and get around box outs, because if he's jumping up unimpeded, his length does allow him to disrupt a lot of possessions that defenses are trying to close out, and I've been really happy with how he's been able to rebound. Obviously, he's not perfect, and there's very few players who profile like Andre Drummond in the league who basically win every rebounding matchup that they go into. But Chris Boucher's ability to bang around with guys who are bigger than him has really wowed me, especially for elongated periods of time. There have been full games where he's brought it for 24, 25 minutes and acted as a super sub in maybe seven or eight games this year where he's been really, really fantastic. And him providing that type of, and along with the rim rolling as well, in games against the Lakers, let's say, when they broke off that 10, I think it was a 10-2 to run at the start of the fourth quarter before they stole that game. The game against the Mavericks where, you know, the defensive intelligence is taking a step forward, or at least we perceive it to be because maybe we didn't see enough beforehand. But he's also getting the game-winning dunk because, of you know, he's a terror running to the rim as well. So just seeing all those types of things and hanging around in the post, just that on its own, being able to hang with bigger players, and to play above his weight, it seems. It doesn't mean he plays like he's 280, but he plays like he's 230, something like that. You know what I mean? So it's it's just been nice to see him progress and ameliorate in some ways to just being a four-level defensive player in some aspects to where his length and athletic ability allows him to be way above in others, which you know levels out to him being a, you know, a pretty good bench player. Right, right, for sure. And I mean... As well in reflection now in hindsight is um, I definitely think that from for myself I kind of subscribe to that archaic ideas of is is Boucher a four or a five and I think I couldn't answer that question and that's what made me question his ability to kind of fit in the NBA and it was so stupid of me now in hindsight and especially when we've got positionless basketball for the last four or five years and Boucher's versatility and energy is actually a positive in this regard and I still for some reason, was kind of deliberating over, is he a four, is he a five, rather than focusing on what he is good at. And the role, as the role man, it's been nice because it kind of, in with with Gasol and Ibaka, they, they're far, yeah, like you mentioned, they, they pop, there's a short role. And there's something nice to have in this big man that is just fearlessly coming down the channel. It kind of puts the de- defense on their heels. And it's been really nice to see, and it's, it's cool to see Lowry have a roller like that to operate with, and you get to see another layer of, of Lowry's mastery. But at the same time, I, th- I think Boucher still needs to be better at finishing around the rim. He's still only, he's shooting 59% at the rim currently, and his recent tear, the last four or five games, I think he's 9 of 12 from there, and that's been one of the catalysts for why he's been so effective over this holiday season. But if you want Boucher to kind of fit the role of a of a pure uh, a pure rim runner, so to speak, then you got to look at like someone like Dwight Powell or Clint Capella. They're 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 shooting seventy percent plus at the rim, and I think if Boucher really wants to make a name for himself and continue to get more minutes, I think he needs to bump that up to at least sixty five percent around the rim currently. Actually, that's a really good point, especially because. Like you're talking about Powell plays with Doncic, Capello with Harden. Right. Lowry isn't 
quite a Doncic or Harden, but as far as setting up big men on the way to the rim, really, really good. So if Lowry is your counterpart, you probably should be shooting a higher percentage. I do Absolutely. think I agree with that. I, I want to talk about something. So now that we've eaten our crow regarding Boucher, and deservedly so, I think he's been one of the most exciting parts of this season that's been riddled with injuries. But another one where you and I, this is something we don't get the McCaw fixation. Oh. He's come around. He's definitely, he's improved from the point at which he was at. Not to the point where I, and I'm setting myself up for maybe eating crow later on, but I don't think that he should be taking a larger chunk of minutes than your guy, and now the collective Raptors guy, Terrence Davis II, who is, you know, wonderful, and even just the, the last game against Cavaliers, 19 and, I think he had 19 points. Mm-hmm. Maybe like, I don't know how many rebounds that's this. I think he, not a lot. He was 19 and 6. So with Terrence Davis playing really well and often being a really, really big cog in what the Raptors are trying to do, especially with Lowry plus bench units and especially with the tertiary creation that they need with all these injuries, how do you find that Nurse and Co. are handling that position? Because a lot there is a lot of overlap between what McCaw and what Davis are meant to be doing. It's it's a weird one, right? And I've kind of looked at looked at their their highlights kind of side by side. I like to kind of watch a bit of McCall and watch a bit of Davis because they're so they're so different in in what they do and what they provide. But in other ways, they're so similar in some of their maybe mishaps on the defensive end, uh, jumping in the passing lane. Uh, but there's there's no there's still no way that. You could keep playing McCall more minutes than Terrence Davis. At this point in time, I think it's it's fine to play McCall the, as much as they did with the injury rate, and it's definitely given him more confidence. He's at times looked more willing to shoot. I think he went three for five against Cleveland, and him playing point guard that Nurse turned to in the second Boston game was it clearly it clearly. Uh, Greased the greased the wheels of the offense far more because it was harder to sag off of him when he's a corner shooter. But at the end of the day, it's it's clear as it's clear as mud that Terrence Davis is a better player and a better fit for this team, right? Yeah, well, I think I'm in the same boat as you, and I also Terrence Davis. They like you addressed earlier. They both have a proclivity to jump passing lanes, and they both have some success in doing it. One is a rookie. You know, one is Patrick McCaw, who's a three-time champion. And whether or not that's an indicative of what will be corrected or if one of them has a better sense for when to jump passing lanes. Because LeBron was a guy who, you know, the first, I don't know, seven, eight years of his career, and especially, let's say, in the Miami days, actually, let's say that, his decisions to jump passing lanes were almost always rewarded because he had that ethereal sense of, okay, I know exactly when to get the jump. I think Terrence Davis has a better chance of being that level than mm-hmm. Patrick McCaw at this point. So if that's behavior that's either needs to be calmed down or ratcheted up depending on what the skill set is, I prefer Terrence Davis to be that guy. But also, I like Terrence Davis on the glass a lot more than I like Patrick McCaw. I also like Terrence Davis as far as navigating picks a lot more than Patrick McCaw. I also like him a hell of a lot more on offense than Patrick McCaw. But... As far as above-the-break defense, isolation, playing against guys like maybe a Terry Rozier or a Derrick Rose, 
those types of offensive creators, Patrick McCaw is better suited for those specific guys. But is he good enough on them that he justifies the you know stagnation that he can bring to the offense at times? That that's the biggest question. I don't know. What do you think of that? Because that is the question to me. I mean, I think what Patrick McCaw—he just doesn't bring enough. And really, it's a band-aid solution. What they're doing with him right now is that as that primary ball handler in the starting unit, and it can work. It can work for now. It can work in regular season games against Cleveland. It can work against. A lot of teams in the regular season, but it's just not going to happen in the playoffs. Um, they they use him sort of. They love Nick Nurse loves to run that horn set with the two big set and pin down screams for uh, OG and oh, so not OG, uh, Fred and Larry off ball. So you kind of have two kind of off ball mm-hmm. screens happening, and McCall being the the primary ball handler in that situation is that's that's the best place where you can use him because it's hard for a defender to really cheat off of him when he's in the middle of the court and there's two actions happening on either side of the court. It's far harder for a defender to just kind of cheat and overload one side because, well, there's another action happening on the other side and they're two very capable shooters and pick-and-roll operators in Fred and Larry. Whereas when you had McCaw on the corner just kind of spawning up, it's so much easier for the defender to just leave him from the corner and just overload or pack the paint or cheat over on the pick and roll that Lowry was running. So in that regard, Nurse has been very astute and smart in how he uses McCall, but it's it's a, he's he's navigating around a set of skills that McCall doesn't have rather than maybe integrating the skills that Terrence Davis does have. He Terrence Davis just has a higher ceiling and right now might have a lower floor, but I think a lot of the mistakes that Terrence Davis is making, I think what you pointed towards there, uh, jumping passing lanes, it is rookie mistakes. It's like when he didn't foul Shea at the end of the game against the Thunder. It's rookie mistakes. It's it's um, it's something that I think he's going to work through, and that's why he needs to keep getting the minutes and keep ratcheting up because I don't think there's much more of a ceiling with McCaw's play. Yeah, but also you bring up that horns play, which, yes, that is a favorite. Oftentimes, that will transition into a pitch play. And once, you know, McCaw is done and the the Raptors, whether it's Lowry and Van Vliet, whoever's operating the pitch play up top into a pick and roll usually, would you rather have McCaw funneling down to a corner to space out during that what would probably be a spread pick and roll? Or would you rather Davis going down to for the spread pick and roll? It just, it's it doesn't seem like, McCaw is bringing anything that Davis doesn't and then you wonder why not go with Davis because he has a you know you can't really reckon with him having a higher ceiling because it's that seems to be quite apparent so mm-hmm. why not go for that but also there there's an aspect of we're talking about these things because the Raptors have been ravaged by injuries and would we even be having these conversations if that wasn't happening probably not so I guess, like you were saying, McCaw operating as you know the top for the horn set works fine in the regular season. Is that going to be blown up and cheated off of in the playoffs? Totally, mm-hmm. but ideally, is that something we're going to have to worry about? I hope not, and I hope that Terrence Davis, a guy who can hunt his own three-point shot, a guy who can help out on the glass, and one of those guys who I think looks primed to be 
for me, this this could just be hyperbole, but looks primed to be a playoff performer type of guy. Mm-hmm. Big guard who can kind of, sometimes he'll play way above his head. And those are the types of guys who do really well in the playoffs, I find. Like Eric Gordon, horrible during the regular season. When it comes time for the Rockets and they need him in the playoffs, he's going to be a gunner. And they're going to say, we need offense. Who's going to give it to us? Well, chubby-faced Eric Gordon is going to give it to him. And Terrence Davis, I think, has that type of, uh, I guess, DNA in his game. You see it when he'll just rip through a guy. He'll get fouled three times going up. But you see that football body get to the rim. He'll throw down, something like that. It's just there's so much more to his game. And it's so clear that there's so much untapped potential. So this mm-hmm. is just you and I, a couple guys who love Terrence Davis. And you, <laughs> one, of the, one of the first Raptors writers who was on it, just waxing poetic about his game and maybe being a little bit unfair to McCaw from the both of us. But I just, I don't get it. I don't really get it. And I, I, I got to check my stats here, but I believe that Terrence Davis is now shooting 49% from corner threes. Like that's is, absurd. That's so good. That's absurd. And on his corner threes too, he almost has, like his release looks already so much cleaner than it didn't even in summer league. But from the corner at times, almost, you notice his shooting hand just fall. It kind of drifts to the right. It almost, like, fades to the right after he releases. And it's it seems like a weird thing to happen. It's just such a pure stroke already. And I think you mentioned it in one of your recap podcasts. Is he's starting to increase the level of difficulty of these shots, too. He's uh, A lot of his are obviously catch and shoot. He's already set. His base is set straight up and down. But now he's starting to kind of peel off screens and he's kind of turning and shooting quicker. He's challenging himself off the dribble slightly with a couple of pull-ups. Not not many, but you can already see that he feels comfortable to try out new things and start to really kind of push the limits of how he can develop as a shooter. Yeah, that's that's one of the biggest things. I'm glad you brought that up. And that is something I've noted is that it's not just him at the start of the year because what we were seeing at the start of the year was not a guy who's coming off of pin downs or coming off of hawk screens, you know, coming up above the arc and hitting a triple or fading to the corner, filling the lane, hitting a triple while guys closing out on him. We weren't seeing that. We were seeing Pascal Siakam playing the most incredible basketball of his life. We were seeing teams kill themselves to double him. And we we're seeing the ball funneled to Terrence Davis. And it was those three pointers where the guy looks around, takes a beat, puts it up. You're an NBA player. You're supposed to sink those those types of threes. And to go from that where people thought his jump shot might have been the weakness in his game to where you say, okay, he's hitting the wide open threes. We've seen this with OG Ananobi before, where OG shoots the lights out of wide open threes. He's unconscionable. But Terrence Davis is already taking that next step to where it's no longer that the ball's getting defined getting funneled to him after side top side action it's that he's actually coming off of screens and they're looking for him to attack the same way that and not to the same degree but the same way that you might see Orlando Magic use Terrence Ross to attack other teams it's this really dynamic screenplay and you know that we want the three-point shot we're not just trying to create movement in a defense we want Ross to come off the screen and we want him to shoot it and sometimes the Raptors are operating that way with Davis which is a huge nod to his progression, and I just a fantastic thing to see happening, and I'm I'm very glad to see it. Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, 
at this point, once once all the injuries uh, are dealt with, and hopefully, knock on wood, that we have a full a full team in the next month or so, it's it's going to be really interesting to see how many minutes Davis really gets. And even if at this point in time, and I know that Powell is having a career year, but it's only a matter of time till Bad Powell comes back. I'm sorry, and could could. Davis take maybe five minutes or so from Powell in the latter stretch of the regular season heading into playoffs. Like I, I think that at this point, like you mentioned, he could be a playoff performer. He could be getting 15 minutes or 20 minutes in a game and knocking down three corner threes in the second quarter against, I don't know, Indiana or, or, or Miami. Like he could really change the complexion of a series. Yeah. I, I like his potential for that. Definitely. But before we, I kind of want to talk about what happens with that Powell, Ibaka, and there's a bit of trade talk that I'm not so eager to have, but it, we'll just we'll talk about it for a bit. But before that, <laughs> we'll take a little break. And listener, you're going to hear an ad right now. Here's the scenario. Your insurance company is denying your long-term disability claim despite the fact that you've paid premiums for years and your own doctor insists that you're not well enough to work. If this sounds familiar, call Goldfinger Personal Injury Law. You'll speak with me, Brian Goldfinger, a licensed and experienced lawyer who practices exclusively on behalf of accident victims, disability claimants, and their families. Visit goldfingerlaw.com and get us working for you. And welcome back. Still listening to the Rapcast from Raptors Public. Still your host, Samson Folk. Still joined by my guy, my buddy, Adam McQueen. Adam, you ready to talk a little bit of preliminary trade talk? I mean, you're forcing me to do it as you're the host of the podcast, but sure. Let's okay. talk trades. Let's sell, <laughs> let's, sell, let's sell everyone. So I just want to ask you right off the start, and this is, this is something I want to hear off the top of your head. The most achievable asset in the NBA right now that would make the Raptors better is I can't. see now you got me on the spot. I got a couple of names, but I, who's achievable? Like is Joe Harris achievable? Probably Could not. Be. Could be. I I also like Gary Harris. Gary Harris seems achievable. By yeah. Uh, I, d- I don't know what the Nuggets would want in return. Um, it seems like they they need they need uh, more top end talent, and I don't think the Raptors can provide the top end talent for them to justify getting rid of Gary Harris, who's been probably one of the best perimeter defenders in the league, if not the best so far. But he's also. I'm, I'm glad you're a Gary Harris guy, by the way. Oh, Not everyone oh. knows that. Some, I think he's one of the most undervalued people in the league. So I'm glad oh, you said he's that. He's great. But he has also had a huge slump this year in terms of yeah. his offensive output. And well, two years. I've actually. only watched. I've I've watched uh, the Nuggets sparingly, a decent a, a decent chunk as they've kind of started to right the ship a bit, but. For them, yeah, it's it's clear if they want to contend with the top. Teams like LA, they need more high end talent. They've got they're like twelve deep. Like Beasley's not really getting minutes anymore. Like they they've they've got to integrate Michael Porter now. Like I don't think the Raptors can provide anything that will warrant getting back Gary Harris, unless it's a guy by the name of Kyle Lowry, which I 
don't think the Raptors will do. No, I don't think that makes sense. Well, I guess so. What I was thinking is from the Raptors, maybe too Raptor-centric, is that, like you said, the Nuggets are 12 deep. So maybe a guy like Norman Powell, who goes for 20-plus for an extended amount of games, and maybe a player who the Raptors perceive to be, you know, underrated, like a Malik Beasley maybe, or like a Gary Harris. Gary Harris, obviously, much better. But trying to pick one of those underrated players from the end of the, the Nuggets roster seems to be one of the ways that the Raptors could improve. I don't know if that requires a pick or not, but I'm not super sure. And also the Raptors, who's to say whether they're trying to improve or if they just want to get the team back together healthy and see how things work in the playoffs to get a better barometer of where they're at. But I did, I did want to force some trade talk into it regardless because I know the people love the trade talk. The people, the people they love the talk. Well, I mean, I'm not opposed to a Norman Powell trade, but, like, in reality, what is... Under, like, trying to determine what Norman Powell's trade value is or if he's a negative or positive asset is, is in, it's impossible. Like, it changes every single minute of every single day. And, I mean, I trust Masai Ujiri over anyone to get the most value out of him in a trade. But at the same time, I feel like it's, like you mentioned there, any kind of Powell trade we're, we're devising in our fan fiction here is very Raptor-centric. And we, we're we assuming that uh, that people on the outside aren't actually watching him or know that he goes through significant droughts and does have some deficiencies that haven't really improved throughout his, his career so far. But, I mean, there could be... I would say less so of a Nuggets, but a team that's kind of middling, that wants a solid starter, might be more more inclined to trade for a Norman Powell type. I, I don't know if there's anything the Raptors would want in return, but I'm thinking more along the lines of uh, Orlando or San Antonio or any, any of those teams that are battling to be cannon fodder in the first round of the playoffs. Ooh, even maybe the Hawks. You know mm. what I mean? The Hawks looking for a guy who can attack off of Trey Young's gravity and John Collins, his attacking of the rim, a guy to hang out on the weak side. Because I know they have Hader or Huerta. I'm not, I'm not sure how you say Kevin Huerta. Hyatta. Hyatta? Okay. Kevin Hyatta. <laughs> they have him hanging out on the weak side. For a moment in time, they thought, ah, this guy could be good, but the returns haven't been super great so far. Norman Powell would probably actually be a pretty slick fit on Atlanta. But I don't know who the Raptors would want outside of that. But regardless, um, talking about Norm Powell, it makes me think of Fred Van Vliet because they're juxtaposed because of the starting lineup snafu. Who was going to be getting it for a time, Norm Powell, when Fred Van Vliet was injured? Fred Van Vliet operating in the starting lineup while he's been healthy. But with Fred, sorry, not Fred, but with Norm playing really well before he's injured, there are questions starting to be asked if maybe you want a 20-point-per-game score from the wing in the lineup rather than a secondary point guard, conversations about what that means for the defense, etc. But when we're talking about Norm Powell and his deficiencies and all that, I know you wanted to talk about Fred Van Vliet, so I'm going to give you the floor right now. Let's hear what you got to say. Yeah, no, I'm just really... I think Fred Van Vliet is the most interesting player to monitor for the rest of the season for the Raptors, not only because of just how in, insane his 2019 was in terms of his rise to prominence and then being virtually unplayable during the Philly series and then obviously becoming the the hero 
that saved the day, the 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 sidekick that really saved the Milwaukee series, et cetera, et cetera, comes out this year, kind of guns are blazing to start before his injury. And then we've also got the upcoming impending free agency. So it's really interesting to gauge, see where he's come from, but also be kind of weary in terms of like, you don't want to overpay the guy too much, but how much is overpaying him? And what, one area in particular that I think Van Vliet has struggled at, and it's it's become, we've got a big enough sample size now, is that he's he's not a good finisher at the rim. And look, anyone under six feet, it's nigh impossible to be uh, above average finisher at the rim when you're that small and you don't possess the explosiveness or the athletic ability to really get up to the rim against the bigs. But it is an issue nonetheless. And I I would like to see over the next course of the next few months is if if Fred Van Vliet could start to pick up some of the 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 grifting that Larry does that Larry that has made Larry so great despite not being the typical super athletic or super tall point guard that everyone seems to be going for nowadays. And I, I that's that's really where I think Van Vliet can improve. If he gets to that point where he's kind of starting to draw more ticky-tack fouls like Lowry does, uh, less the, just getting blocked less simply at the rim and starting to make that big hesitate when he's driving and be a little bit better in that paint area, then it's going to be incredibly hard to not give him the max. But as it stands right now, that glaring deficiency in his game really makes me hesitant to throw thirty million at him or or twenty five plus million at him. Now this is going to come as a surprise, but I agree with you wholeheartedly. A real shocker <laughs> there, I'm sure. But that is that is one of the most interesting aspects of Van Vliet, and maybe it's unfair that I know you compared him to Van, to Lowry just now, and I inherently compare him to Lowry all the time. He's constantly constantly being compared to Lowry, and Lowry as far as a small guard who can finish at the rim. One of the best examples of that of the past 10 years is Lowry, not only because he's able to mediate and figure out how to attack the rim, use his pull-up triple to get past the first line of defense, that threat that allows him to get a lot of blow-bys. Not only that, but his ability to know the space that his, I should say, teammates are in and Mm -hmm. how to use their presence against the rim defender and allow that to get him walking to the rim sometimes or you just see him shuffling his feet waiting around dribbling the ball in the middle of the paint just very patient and Fred isn't that way once Fred is downhill he's downhill once he starts that way his drives end that way and with Lowry one of the beautiful things of his game and this is where Van Vliet should be looking to improve because he's not going to grow is Lowry, if he starts going downhill, it is not a guarantee that the play ends up there. It's not with Van Vliet, he's going to put up a shot or he's going to gnash the pick and roll. One mm-hmm. of those things. Lowry, a lot of the times, will stop right in the middle of the paint and it'll shell shock the defense and the defender immediately because Lowry stopped, he's surveying, or he's slowed down and he's surveying. The defender's immediately looking for who he's looking for Right. And Lowry uses that to his advantage. And it's just always being able to know the spacing between the defender who's behind you and the defender who's in front of you. 
And it seems like Van Vliet has a very, very poor sense of that, mm-hmm. which is why he's always getting trapped on his last step. So whether that means that he's jumping off one foot at the end, trying to make a really reckless pass out that starts the other team on a fast break, whether it means he's getting his shot pinned off the glass, or whether it means that he's just taking so much, taking so much contact, but it's him on his last step. So it means that he's initiating all the contact. It means that the defender is at the spot. Van Vliet isn't on his first step. He can't bounce to his next step and try and throw one up after that. He can't use that step to go into contact on the right shoulder instead of the left shoulder, something like that. We just have Van Vliet on his last step, taking contact, having to throw up circus shots. All those things combined mix for a very bad finisher. And to think about the first game of this year where his pace was really quite impressive against the Pelicans where he kept finishing at the rim and his reads on the help side defender seemed to be quite good the whole game it just it hasn't been at that level the rest of the year and I thought maybe that was something he'd improved but that seems to just be a flash in the pan and and look Van Vliet is a very very good basketball player he's a great player but it's one of these things where now he's proven that he is this good of a player that we have to hold him to a higher standard too. We can't just keep waxing poetic like we do about Terrence Davis because in a year's time, we're probably going to be starting to pick apart things about Davis where he might stagnate in certain areas or he might become the next MVP. It's one of those two things. But with Van Vliet, I've been doing... I did some research for this podcast today, Samson, and I think it's really (laughs) interesting. I know. Who to thunk it? It's, it's interesting that you mentioned that comparison to Larry because it is sometimes, it's not unfair, but it is really hard to be compared to Larry considering how, how good Larry is all the time. And first of all, we've got a big enough sample size to show that he's not a good finisher at the rim. He's set In 2017-18, he was 51.4% at the rim. Last year, 52.1%. This year, he's 51.2%. And in the... In this season so far, he's shooting 40% from two-point range. And in the last four games, when he's ratcheted up his offensive output, given the injuries, he's shooting 33% on 10.5 two-point field goal attempts. So this is that's not good all round. And where I think he can improve, like I mentioned, is drawing more fouls, which is really hard for someone his size and stature. So I kind of looked around the league um, to see guys that, are similar to maybe his frame a bit more and then also maybe the more athletic lead guards in terms of how they what their percentage of fouls they're drawing as well. And he actually isn't bad, but it's just Larry's so good that we might hold that we we compare him to Larry so much because right now Fred Van Vliet is drawing on his it's called um sorry on PPB sports it's Shooting fouls drawn percentage. So how many of your shot attempts are you drawing a foul, essentially? And he's drawing them on 9.66% of his shot attempts. Larry is doing it on 12.5%. And when we look at other guards that you'd assume might get to the line more frequently than a Van Vliet, like a Kemba or maybe a D'Angelo Russell, uh, both of them are actually worse. Jamal Murray is significantly worse. Kemba's at about 8%. Uh, D'Angelo Russell's about 9.5%. Jamal Murray's only at 5.3%. Like, Van Vliet's getting to the to the foul line better than those guys is just not the insane rate that Lowry is, which is 12.5%, which is more... Like, Lowry's getting to the line more than Lillard, 
more than Shea Gilgis Alexander, more than Trey Young, like guys that are considered by media types to be these elite offensive players uh, and like deadly, deadly in the pick and roll, deadly at the rim. And so I think for Van Vliet, it sucks he's compared to Lowry and he's not bad at this, but that is, he can look at Lowry and be like, this is how I become an elite player. This is how I become a max level player. And in one of those aspects, drawing more fouls, I think that's where he could become a max player. I'd be really interested to see what the likes of Jamal Murray, Kemba Walker, and DeAndre Russell shoot at the rim, and then framing that within their their free throw drawing as well. Because mm-hmm. Jamal Murray and DeAndre Russell doesn't surprise me that much because of how they play, especially D'Angelo. You know, there's not a lot of contact in his game outside of putting defenders in jail in the pick and roll. But as far as Kemba, Jamal Murray, something like that, and especially Kemba, what percentage of the time he's drawing fouls, but also how clean are the looks he's getting at the rim. And then Van Vliet juxtaposing that with that and saying Van Vliet is always taking really tough shots at the rim. And the level of difficulty in what Van Vliet's trying to do is a lot of the time it's very, very difficult shots at the rim. So I'm going to look that up once we're done here, but that's, I'm glad you brought that up. That is really interesting. And just to highlight Lowry, I think it's, and I'll say this one last thing, but, it's so impressive that Lowry's able to do that this year because last year his free throw numbers were basically non-existent. His driving numbers were basically non-existent and he played a completely different version of basketball than he has ever before just to accommodate Kawhi Leonard. Then in the playoffs when he needed to not play that way, he immediately went back to, okay, I can get us a bucket. I can score the first 11 points of game six. Fine. It's going to be good. And this year... He's already back to grinding away for fouls, getting mm-hmm. to the rim, being you know a plus scorer. So just to highlight how incredible Kyle Lowry is, that he's able to completely switch the way he plays and be so good at both versions is crazy. Yeah, it's, I mean, those first couple months with Kawhi, I mean, it started to come out that obviously he was not talking to Masai and there might have been a little bit of discontent from his end and he went, he was the most passive that I've ever seen him play in a long, long time. And it was almost to an extreme degree. I mean, there's probably numerous factors as to why he was doing that. But it is awesome to see at 34 years old that he still is able to do things that are typically people, when they get to his age, struggle to do. It's harder to draw fouls in that in that area. But but like we mentioned there, he's it's his basketball IQ. It's his savviness. It's his understanding of what the defender is going to do and manipulating where the defender goes which allows him to draw these fouls allows him to be so good in the pick and roll and allows him to be so good around the rim so it shows that his game will continue to age well i mean i don't know how many top end years he has left i mean i maybe two more i i i don't know i i can't set a limit at this point but it, he doesn't rely on athleticism. He never has. He never will. And that's why he still continues to be such a great player and also probably an overlooked player still because of his age. Yeah. Balance and control dictate Kyle Lowry's whole thing. And that's what allows him to take advantage of defenders who don't have that in a moment's time and get to the rim. I, I wanted to draw attention to your piece. I think it's from about three and a half weeks ago. Cream rising to the top kind of assessing how the Raptors were doing against the top teams in the NBA because they've been 
obviously superb at beating teams that they're quote unquote supposed to beat this year. I believe they're against under five hundred teams. They're undefeated? Question mark. Is that correct? Uh, like I believe so. I believe it's still yeah. the case. Yeah. So that's already very very impressive. But that does speak to whether there's a ceiling or not. And I'm going to address you with this because you wrote the piece. Now that you're looking at the Raptors as an injured squad, and at that point in time when you wrote that, Siakam, Gasol, Powell, still healthy. And Mm -hmm. you're looking at this team now, and I'm wondering, does that number mean a lot to you, knowing what you know, looking at the team before they had this they still had the Lowry Ibaka injuries, but certainly not the same amount of injuries. Does that number matter as much, or are we still waiting for this team to come together? Are you, were you seeing things that concern you about whether the Raptors are the cream that rises to the top? Oh, oh, absolutely. I think, I think we have to be realistic with our expectations this season, and I think this December period with the injuries... And pretty much after I wrote this piece, when all the injuries occurred, we can start. I, when it comes down to the playoff time, we can throw out what's happened in this December in terms of what they're going to look like in the playoffs because some of the, so many of their big time players aren't in aren't playing. But when they did play, and when I did write this piece, it it did show that against the top teams, and particularly the top defensive teams like your Philly and Milwaukee, is that they were just so much better at forcing the Raptors into these mid-range shots. They the the frequency with which the Raptors had settled for the mid-range just like it jumped up by about 6%. They were trading all of their at-rim shots for mid-range shots, like almost almost entirely. And that's that's an issue when you play against the best teams and I think that's an issue because Siakam has struggled against these guys. Okay, so perfect. I have a quote here from you. Quote, static ISO possessions are not what makes Siakam special. He's an assortment of limbs, overflowing energy, poetic footwork, and boring speed. It is restrictive to confine him to such rote possessions. End quote. Not only is that beautifully written, that collection of words makes me happy to read, (laughs) A. But B, when you see that there is a lot of monotony in how the Raptors are using Siakam, do you think that's an expression of saving some of that for the playoffs or B do you think that's an expression of not sure if he's ready to be an all-consuming playmaking give this guy the ball in every situation type of player what do you see there um I don't want to cop out but I think a little bit of both I think at the same time you need to give him reps in this situation because once if we learn anything from the playoff run last year is Nothing could beat a superstar that scores and can score in isolation possessions better than anyone else. Like it's just a it's just a bailout option, and I think giving him these opportunities to try and score in ISO possessions, like I mentioned, those static ISO possessions, which are sometimes an eyesore. There, you see these incredible feats where he's spinning past the likes of Kelly Oubre or. Or name another B-list player, but then it becomes incredibly painful to watch when Anthony Davis is just completely blocking his jump shots or making him pretty much essentially a zero on the offensive end in these possessions. So I think it's more get him reps in these situations, but and 
maybe you're going to have to rely on it occasionally. But like I mentioned, there needs to be some more creativity. And I think Nick Nurse will be more creative. I, th- I think it leans more towards what you mentioned. They're, they're going to be holding things back. You can't, you can't show everything you're going to do with someone like Siakam until the playoffs. And I think as well in the playoffs last year, the slight tweaks they made game to game are what won them series. Look at the Milwaukee series with what they did with Kawhi defensively. Look at the kind of back and forth chess match that occurred between Nurse and Brett Brown last year. So showing any of your hand before the playoffs begin, especially with the slim margin of error the Raptors have, which was kind of the, I guess the the thesis or takeaway from my my article was, that, like they do, they don't have enough talent to get by without executing near perfectly and. Yeah, I think it. I think it is a combination of what you what you mentioned there. But as Kevin Durant said, Nick Nurse isn't really good at X's and O's, but he gets you guys into winning positions. <laughs> what yeah, a load of malarkey, by the way. I'm sorry that I've gone off on a tangent, but that was. Oh, Kevin Durant infuriates me. At moments, I love him. How honest and pure and genuine he is. But Jesus, man, like shut up. <laughs> sorry. He's uh, I'm not a I'm not a Kevin Durant fan. I think he's kind of like Kyrie, fake deep. And somebody who's trying to be fake deep means that they're trying to manipulate your perception of what they're saying all the time, which to me doesn't seem genuine. And so it just makes you add that another layer of skepticism to what they're saying. And I'm at that level with Durant. Anytime he says something, I'm kind of confused, and I'm wondering what the motive is there. But also there's the aspect of maybe there is no motive. Maybe he's just spouting off. And that's probably what that was, where he's saying, yeah, Nick Nurse, not an X's and O's guys. But he literally has everybody who's doing an X's and O's, you know, salivating at some of the sets he draws up. Like that hammer play <laughs> at the end of the, uh, what game am I? Where they, they lost right at the end. Um, Lowry missed that corner three. Indiana, Correct. Yes, uh, I, and I then like... he pointed to his ring, the ring that was not right. He drew up that hammer play. That's you know it's a staple of the Raptors playbook. But that hammer play is so genius, where it's that you know the guy funnels to the three point line, the corner, while the pick and rolls ran on the other side. That huge swing pass comes across the baseline while the screen is being set. The guy is sprinting to get to the corner. The ball's being thrown before the guy's there. Wide open three pointers, and the Raptors run that play so often. And that is a Nick Nurse drop, and just things like that. Yeah, Nick Nurse, man, he can he can drop a play for sure. His X's and O's can be immaculate sometimes. But to get away from that, talking about near perfect execution, like you were, we're going to talk about a player who has not had that in his life for some time. And it's the only Twitter question we received in the short amount of time that the tweet was up. Scott Young says. Are there signs of Stanley Johnson improvement, perhaps him making it into the regular rotation? And I'll swing this to you, Adam. What do you think? Um, no. That's the that's the <laughs> short answer. No. I look at how every other depth piece has performed and actually exceeded expectations. I'm thinking yeah, pretty much every bench guy other than Malcolm Miller has exceeded expectations. There's no room for Stanley Johnson anymore, and I don't want to disparage him. I think he's caught a lot of heat on Twitter, unfortunately, as many many people do. But 
look, it's just it's just is what it is. He's not good enough. He, he's a zero offensively. He has no touch. He has no feel. And def- his defensive upside does does nothing. It, it's a, like the smallest dent in the downside that his that his offense or lack of offense brings. And I'm I'm just un- I'm just upset for you more than anything that you wrote a whole pre preseason primer on Stanley Johnson and the potential that he may or may not have. That was, so, what do you think? Well, it was the least um, optimistic feature I've ever <laughs> written. Because when I was watching the tape, and I wanted, I was like, I'm going to tell the story so that Stanley Johnson can be a success. But I couldn't even get to that point within the article, even though I wanted to. It was just so sobering to watch his tape. And just to watch a guy who's so physically gifted operate as such an inept, weak-side attacker. And also that he had spent already such a large part of his career shooting the three-pointer and that there's no coming back from it. Over 30% of his shots over his career have been from three. He's had the opportunity to try and get better in that area and just hasn't at all. The way he drives and does the same little two-step, he gathers the ball, takes that big first step with his right foot, tries to do half a euro because he's not getting completely lateral He's just getting a little bit to the left, stepping to his left foot. He runs a guy over every goddamn time, and he gets a charge once a game if he plays more than six minutes because he is a bull in a china shop and just can't pass. He can defend, but there's so many players on the Raptors who can defend that that's kind of a moot point. It doesn't really matter. And like you said, everybody else on the roster, if they haven't exceeded expectations, they've had a moment. Malcolm Miller had a moment with the Raptors during the 30-point comeback. He played incredible defense. He was fantastic. And that's a moment in the season that he can look back on. Stanley Johnson hasn't even had a moment. He hasn't had a single you know, thing in this season yet that you can look back on and say, all right, I'm building on that. Patrick McCaw had his 47-point first quarter, his 96-point <laughs> game the other night. And I think he had 38 assists versus the Celtics. All better than Kobe's ever achieved is what I'm saying. But there are moments he's had. Stanley Johnson just hasn't been able to get anything. And that's disappointing because to have this conversation and to be frank, you kind of have to have this abstract idea of Stanley Johnson, the basketball player. But if I start thinking about Stanley Johnson, the human, the person who lives the same way I do and that I could connect with, that's quite sad that he hasn't been able to have a moment. And you can see it in his shoulders when he's on the court, and mm-hmm. it just is not working out. And I don't know what this means for his career, but he's on a guaranteed contract. He's got another year on it, so we'll see. He's got time to make himself into something if there is a possibility of that. If mm-hmm. there is or if there isn't, I'm not sure. But for right now, there's just there's no room for him on the roster. That's well, not on the roster. In the rotation, I should say. I just don't see it. I'd rather play Dewan Hernandez or Sega Bacanate. Whoever, whoever the Raptors have as a big, I'd rather see them, honestly. 100%. And it's honestly probably the only blemish to Bobby Webster and Masai Ujiri's record over the last, what, 12 months or so. That decision to give him the player option on the second year it just didn't make sense. I don't know what is who or... 
who his suitors were during free agency. And as uh, as Blake Murphy uh, pointed out, like it was a great redraft prospect. The the thought was a great idea. Look, he has theoretical upside. He's not going to cost much, and he was in a crappy situation. It hasn't worked out fine, but to give a second year on there, I don't know if they were forced into that situation. But uh, it was it was just probably one of the only bad decisions they've made. Yeah, and also I wasn't sure about the macaw thing either. But hey, we're well past that as far as oh, in the right. podcast and the Raptors as far as their decision making in this free agency, not super crazy, not incredible. We're used to the Raptors finding the bargains, but, you know, they found that in Terrence Davis, so whatever. Chris Boucher got him last year. There's so much goodwill already for that front office sitting in the fandom that, you know, they can kind of, they could probably screw up three summers in a row, and people would be like, ah, it's cool, it's Masai, it's Bobby, whatever. But as far as signing Johnson and McCaw this summer, and I think that takes up nearly $8 million in cap, those two, doesn't seem like the best thing. Seems like they could have done better than that, especially with Fred looming. And, and you know, Fred is looming, however much he's going to get. But a, a bit of a weak point on the resume, I guess. But the best resume, I think, in the NBA. I don't know who does it better than Masai. So, mm-hmm. really, it doesn't matter. But, sorry, Scott Young. Uh, Adam and I don't see Stanley Johnson finding his way into the rotation. I don't know if you're a Stanley Johnson fan or if you're just wondering, but... Maybe a relative? Yeah, (laughs) so whatever. (laughs) That's funny. And like listeners all know that Samson's kind of Mr. Positivity, Mr. Half Glass Half Full guy of Raptors Republic. And if he is struggling to come up with reasons why we should be celebrating Stanley Johnson, then I don't think anyone can. Damn it, I I said I wouldn't disparage him on this podcast, but look, ah, (laughs) you wrote me in. This is a. This has actually been a pretty pessimistic uh, episode, don't you think? We're gonna get back. I can't believe we did the first twenty minutes of our podcast on Boucher, and both of us started with things we didn't like about him. Well, we said, "Hey, we were wrong," but were we wrong about this aspect (laughs) of it? And then we both doubled down to say, "Well, not this aspect," but I, I was wrong about how his weight would play into how he plays in the paint because he's definitely been a real player in there and he's been able to, I don't, he's just such a fun player to watch and sometimes he can exceed your expectations by such an amount that it's insane. So I, we've certainly said enough nice things about Boucher on the podcast, but I think this podcast actually has leaned (laughs) more pessimistic than usual, but that's, you know, that's okay. I just did a podcast with Katie Heindel and that was all, you know, glowy and lovey. So that's fine. This is this is good. We got to get back to a healthy medium. <laughs> you need to bring me around to just bring the dark cloud across everything. Yeah, our episodes will become known as these grumpy, curmudgeonly. Ah, oh, can he? How's he using his steps getting to the free throw line? We don't really know. Oh, God. <laughs> Old man yelling at clouds. Yeah, exactly. How many times do we have to teach you this lesson, old man? I don't know if you're aware of that SpongeBob reference, but <laughs> I oh, hope so, so far over my head. I I was too. I think I was too old for SpongeBob. I don't think I'm old, but like I think it just. I think I was one year too late. One year. 
Maybe two. I don't know. <laughs> well, how old are you? 25. I'm, I'm 24, man. So I know a lot of the listeners think I'm 15. I'm actually 24. <laughs> so maybe I'm you were one year I'm freshly turned 25. Late. So oh, we, might right. be, we might be closer in age than we thought. Wow. How serendipitous. But as far as serendipity and things that are great, Maybe you should take this opportunity to take the floor and guide the people towards your work or your Twitter account, whatever you want, man. Tell the people where to find you. Uh, the usual. I'm on Raptors Republic. I will be writing a lot more as the new year comes about and finally time permits. And you can find me on Twitter. I don't even know what my handle is. Adam underscore McQueen for just more pessimistic, grumpy takes if you need to be... I don't know, brought back down to reality. That's that's officially your brand now, hey? You're the, the grumpy guy? I don't think I can wear it too well, because once Gasol comes back, I might be writing that the Raptors are championship contenders again. But for now, I'm like a chameleon. <laughs> Basically, yeah, no kidding. I should have known. Gasol was injured. I should have known this was going to be a grumpy podcast. <laughs> <laughs> And that was that's maybe the biggest joke is that the Adam McQueen of it all is that he joined Raptors Republic once Gasol came through. And then when Gasol was injured, he's like, this team sucks, man. I don't know what you see. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's honestly the first thing I said about Boucher is his pick and roll D wasn't Mark Gasol. So screw it. They're, they're <laughs> done for until he comes back. I actually saw a graphic that Gasol was in the top ten players of 2019, and I've never I saw that too. That was I've insane. never felt more validated in my life. <laughs> well, you know what? You know what the mistake we made in this podcast is. We were we started out like, hey, let's talk about how great Boucher is, and then we decided to compare him to Gasol, and had no choice but to be like, oh, he doesn't do these things as well as Gasol, and then for Fred. We compared them to Lowry. These are two <laughs> Hall of Famers that we just decided to be like, are Fred Van Vliet and Boucher Hall of Famers? No? Ah, forget them. Forget that, I think that was, our, that was our mistake, definitely. Nah. I've made, I've made plenty of mistakes on this podcast <laughs> and on many other things in my life, but oh well. Live, live and learn. Okay. Well, for me, um, Stay tuned to the Raptors Republic podcast. The only podcast I can think of that's coming in the next month that I know off the top of my head is a an Eastern Conference reassessment with Michael Pina. If you don't know who Michael Pina is, I think he's one of the very best writers doing the NBA right now. He's fantastic. So feel free. You can just Google search him. I'm sure you'll find lots of stuff. But for me, uh, read the Black Box Report. That's the joint article I do with Lewis Asman. I think it is really, really good stuff, and we try our best to make that entertaining and enlightening and insightful every single week. As for me, you don't have to follow me on Twitter if you're listening to this. If you read my stuff, that is already enough support. And thank you very much for listening, Adam. Thank you very much for coming on once again. It's been a blast. See ya! All right. And listener, whether you're getting into this in the morning or at night, have a blessed day and goodbye. Everyone needs more vacation, right? The new United Gateway card knows how to take you away with great travel rewards and no annual fee, ever. The wait for vacation is over. Tap now or visit unitedgatewaycard.com to apply. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year, automatically, dollar for dollar. 
with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply.